For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Consequence Uncut, a series that gives listeners and readers a deeper dive into our features with major artists. And for this episode, we are talking to Alan Hughes. Hip-hop did something that no other medium in our form in the history of mankind and womankind did, which is completely consumed everything in its path. And you saw how... In the last five years, it was happening for 30, 40 years. It became the number one selling genre of music because it literally envelops everything in its path and nothing can survive hip-hop's path because it, it just adopts in. So R&B became hip-hop, rock became hip-hop, country became hip-hop, you know, so you, you can't compete with that. So we're back for another episode. I'm Mijan, lead podcast producer at Consequence. I'm Liz Shannon Miller. I'm senior entertainment editor here at Consequence. So Liz, it is such a pleasure to have you on the pod. I mean, I've been, I've been so jealous because I've actually listened to you on a podcast and it's just, it's such a pleasure to hear you in the interview. And I just feel like I've been jealous because other people have had this privilege, but I haven't had this privilege. Well, seriously, anytime, because it's a real pleasure to hear your sexy podcast voice at the very least. <laughs> and I apologize. Well, I apologize if I crossed any lines by calling it a sexy uh, podcast voice, but it's a very sexy podcast voice. I feel like my only goal is to hear that my voice is sexy. So I think that you've crossed no lines. You're actually in the like bullseye zone for like my heart. So Excellent. You. You're welcome. <laughs> No, but it, it's such a pleasure to have you here because I feel like you're our like pop culture film TV guru, and we haven't been able to have that flavor yet on Consequence Uncut. And to be able to do it also with layering in our celebration of Hip Hop 50, it's basically like the trifecta interview that we've been waiting for. No, I it, it really came together organically. Uh, I did the interview with Alan Hughes, not necessarily planning to include it for this, but at the end of it, and you'll hear it in the interview, he's just such an amazing talker. And I was like, I don't, this is going to be a great print piece, but I also want people to be able to hear him in his own words talking about a lot of the topics we discussed. Yeah. And I feel like that's so important about the type of coverage that we've been doing here at Consequence for Hip Hop 50 is really like centering the voices on the people that lived it, that contributed to some of the pieces that really 
helped move the genre forward and to just kind of get out of the way. There's one thing to just like put a list together, but it's another thing to bring those people in and let them tell their stories in their own words. Yeah, I should probably explain a little bit about who Alan Hughes is for people who might not know. Oh, yeah. Let us, please. Yes. So Alan Hughes is one half of a directing team that was known as the Hughes Brothers because he and his twin brother, Albert, made some films together. Sibling directing pairs are not uncommon, but they aren't as common as you might think. And the Hughes Brothers broke out in a really big way in the early 90s when they made their feature debut, which was a little film entitled Menace to Society. It played can. Did you know that? Really? Which is wild. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was a it was a can debut. Uh they went to they went to they went to France. Oh my god. So yeah, it's he so anyways, first they got started making short films, then they made music videos, and then they graduated to feature films and they've been a big part of hip hop culture from that lens for mm-hmm. a long time. And just recently, Alan Hughes, he and his brother aren't working together anymore on various projects. They're both doing their own thing. Alan just recently completed a docuseries about the life of Tupac entitled Dear Mama. It's currently streaming on Hulu. It was an FX production. You know, that means it's quality. Yeah. And it's a fascinating, like, five-part series about Tupac's life and also the life of Tupac's mother, who was a huge influence on him. You learn so much about, you know, everything from Tupac, from the arc of Tupac's career to Mm -hmm. Tupac's mother being a member of the Black Panthers and every, you know, the activism that she instilled in Tupac as a result. There's so many fascinating details to it. Like there's literally a sequence in this limited series where we have archival footage of Tupac doing an interpretive dance to Don McLean's Starry Starry Night. Oh my God. (laughs) And it's an actual thread that runs throughout the series. And it's actually pretty fascinating. Uh, The reasons for it being present there are really interesting. So I had a great conversation with Alan, both about Dear Mama and Tupac, because Alan has his own fascinating backstory with Tupac that gets included in the show. (laughs) And yeah, it's just there's there's so much to unpack with him. I was supposed to talk to him for 20 minutes. Uh, Very generously, the interview stretched to 30. Oh, my God. Yeah, we, we covered an awful lot. Yeah, there's just a magic that happens with interviews with people who are either just so powerful in their own medium or just so in tune with the piece that they made. And I'm so glad that he was so generous because, I mean, he really captured both in the interview, but also in the in the documentary, you know, the onion that is Tupac. You know, he was just such a multifaceted, talented human being. And he was almost in Menace to Society, but then got booted, creative differences, blah, blah, blah. But it's so funny to see the connection between like the filmmaker and then the, the subject. And you really do address that. And I just feel like it captures so well the realness that is Alan Hughes. He's like, I don't even like it when filmmakers include themselves in stuff, but I had to do it because I was a part of this. <laughs> it is very funny to watch him in the documentary. Like he kind of almost gets dragged on camera. Like he first starts talking about what happened with between him and Tupac while he's like off camera and Snoop Dogg is the interview subject and Snoop Dogg is like making jokes about Alan being the one to do this because it's worth watching the documentary for the full story about this but Mm -hmm. Alan Hughes and Tupac had a bit of a falling out because of this whole thing where uh Tupac and his guys beat Alan Hughes up and (laughs) And Tupac was actually convicted of uh, assault and battery and did two weeks of jail. What? 
Yeah, that was. Oh my uh, god, that, that part was, I did not know. Yes, he. This was. Uh, Tupac went to jail for him and his guys beating up Alan Hughes, and he he did publicly apologize to Alan Hughes for this after the fact, but I don't mm. believe they ever reconciled properly before Tupac's death. Forgive but not forget. Oh, he he did forgive him. I think, uh, yeah, Tupac, Tupac apologized. Uh, Tupac Alan, apologized. Yes, Al, Alan Hughes. Uh, Alan Hughes. I think if 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 the stock, if, I mean, I guess a pretty good apology to someone for after even after everything that happened is making a five part docu series about their life. But I'm also, I, know. I, I mean, it it shows growth. It shows growth. Yeah, I don't want to speak for Alan Hughes in that respect. That is like one of the few things we didn't talk about. Well, I mean, I think you said it. It's like there's no better way to forgive someone than to celebrate them. You know, and to and to really come full circle. And this is one of the the really most powerful parts about this interview is not just for people to show growth, but for people to put something out there that matters and for people to remember that hip hop was and is this powerful medium that can really make change. You know, when he says like hip hop can save the world, I really do believe that because both Menace's Society, the film, and the way that music was being released by NWA was all this way of telling the story of what was really going on in the inner city, in the, in, in the community, and to redefine the world in its own way. Like that quote where he's like, nothing can stand in the way of hip hop is yeah. just... I mean, it's it's just epic because it captures the journey of hip hop. You know, like country is hip hop now. You know, like everything has a little flavor. You know? <laughs> yeah, it speaks to the power of it as a cultural force. And it also speaks to it just as a rallying cry. There's a real power to it. Yeah. So, you know what, people? Listen to the episode. Watch the show. And remember that it's not just the first 50 years of hip hop. It's the launching of a medium that continues to change our world. And we're so happy that it's here because hopefully it will help save us. Fingers crossed anyway. (laughs) So yeah, once you've listened to this interview, please go check out the full article on consequence.net. There is a link for that in the show notes. And also please subscribe to the podcast feed to stay up to date with these in-depth interviews. And remember, as always, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. We want other people to discover the podcast and let us know what we're doing right. If it's negative, like who cares? We don't need that negativity, okay? We want to show growth, okay? So constructive feedback only. Liz, it's been a pleasure. Please come again. Anything you write about, anything for Consequence Uncut. I just love spending time with you one-on-one in this special way. And now I'll turn it over to Liz and Alan Hughes. Please enjoy. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. And I've seen all of Dear Mama. It was a fascinating experience. And I'd love to start off this by asking you, essentially, at what point you knew in taking on this story that it wouldn't just be you looking at the life of Tupac and his mother, but also that you would have to be a character in it. You know, I was just remembering of two of the producers and Nelson George and Lasse Yarve my editor and my writing partner, they were pressuring me the whole time to be in it. I knew we had to deal with it. And I kept saying, I'm not doing, I can't cross that line. How do we figure out a way to, it's, or I didn't want to do it, period. And then once I, once it really happened on the set with Tupac's second manager, Atrian Greg, Gregory, Layla Steinberg was on the set too. And you see in the film what happens. I realized, I go, all right, if, if you can make that work, because I'm clearly uncomfortable and it's clearly real. And I remember when I started, when Atron started interviewing me, I did black out. When I black out, meaning 
I'm just speaking my truth and I don't remember what I said. So I had to recuse myself from that por- part of the edit. And when Lasse presented it to me, I'm like, oh, I'd like a thought or two. But I was like, I can't touch this really, you know, and if this sent it to the network, as long as everyone feels like it's authentic, which is what it, what it is, and that I'm not forcing it because it was the number one question that always came up, even in the pre-press we did. So I knew um, it had to be dealt with. I just was reluctant about being on screen. Do you mind articulating why that was? I don't like when filmmakers put themselves in the film. A very good reason. Yeah, I, I just think it just, and I, and quite frankly, I don't want to be famous. I've had a little bit of that early in my career with my brother when we came out with Men's Society and it was like, eh, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. You know, I don't, you want to focus on the subject. You want to focus on the filmmaking and make sure that that they're, they're meeting somewhere. I don't want to be thinking about the filmmaker or what I like about her or him or not like about her or him. That just gets in the way. So I'm very much against filmmakers being on screen and, and these type of things, you know, and still am. <laughs> Your opinion has not changed. <laughs> no. <laughs> totally fair. You know, going going back to the doc a bit, I'm, I'm curious, one of the elements that I found really fascinating was the way that Starry Night becomes this unexpected theme throughout. And I was, I, I'd love to, for you to talk about the discovery process of that. Like how did, how did, was, was that something that you always knew could be a really nice way to connect a lot of things that were being talked about? You know, was it, there's one good, there's, I mean, I mean, uh, there's one documentary that stands out, Resurrection, that the estate was involved in, came out in 2002, and Starry Starry Night was in that documentary, and it was Oscar nominated, it was well done, it was Tupac's own voice the whole time, all interviews cut together to be one, one uh, journey with him, and I, I remember, I'll be frank, I heard Starry Starry Night, and I was like, God, this is corny as fuck, like, I, I wasn't even familiar with the song, to be frank, back then. And I didn't like the feel of it. I didn't like what you, I don't want nothing to do with this. But when we started doing this, and I discovered through his drama teacher in Baltimore School of Performing Arts, Donald Hickens, who, wow, what a poet himself, the way he puts things. And he's talking about, and his friend John Cole, they're talking about what that song meant to them, meant to Tupac. And I, I listened to it, and we started playing around with it. I was like, wow, this is powerful. I, I didn't, I, I must admit, I was never a fan of poetry. So this journey has like opened my eyes to like the power of poetry and how beautiful it is. And when you look at the juxtaposition, because one of my favorite moments in the film is when he's doing that movie, moving body music piece in the Baltimore Performing Arts School, and you see the transformation to hit him up at the House of Blues. You see how coming from the sweet, pure, artistic poet, to essentially like gangster rapper, it was really rich. So I'm a big fan of the song now. I got to admit, I didn't get it at first. And that's why these guys and gals that are these incredible artists are so ahead of their time, you know? Yeah. And to that point, I think something the documentary really gave me appreciation of is the idea that he was just such a talented performer and he took that talent and he applied it to just very different areas. Absolutely. I think his greatest art outside of his poetry and his writing was he's a performance artist mm-hmm. and i don't i think that, that that's also like his self-destruction because the lines between performance art and reality there were no lines anymore and he ultimately his greatest piece of art he painted in his own blood unfortunately yeah what was what was i think what was the most surprising revelation that came from making this like something you weren't aware of before having before digging into this material the most surprising revelation is of Fanny's whole journey, her story, period. I just didn't. We all knew she struggled with addiction and the song Dear Mama was about her and she was a Black Panther. That's all we knew about her. So her whole journey, 
especially when she represented herself in the Panther 21 trial in 1971, uh, was mind-blowing who she was as a woman, her intellect, and how similar Tupac was to his mother was all very shocking to me, surprising, and again, how ahead of her time she was in her thinking. And But on his side, I think the poverty was the thing that surprised me. I didn't realize the abject poverty and what it does to the psyche and how it affects a young uh, child into the, no matter how talented you are. And to see how that lingered with Tupac and was like the albatross that he was always grappling with. To see that the paranoia, I thought I knew it came from just being a young black male and smoking weed and getting persecuted, Hennessy, getting persecuted by the cops. But to see that the, the feds were after his family from the moment he came out, the moment he was born and what the FBI Cointel Pro program did to his entire family, I, I go, wow, I just, I had no idea. The poverty plus the persecution and the FBI just dismantling his whole family uh, was a complete surprise to me. It's fantastic that it's in the piece, like that we, you know, get to experience that. Yeah. And, you know, there's a book coming out. There was a manuscript. I, there's a book, a definitive book coming out on his life written by Stacey Robinson, one of the EPs on the show. And there's a lot in his childhood about what he went through that's in that book that's not in the film that is mind-blowing. So you, you uh, thank God, Liz, you feel and see the subtext of a lot of that stuff because you can assume, you know, there's that moment where his mother talks about, and you see that picture of that black kid and those cops, mm-hmm. like, questioning like the cops constantly questioning them about people and and the in the movement people on the run the the fbi showing up and 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 like sweating these children that alone was mind-blowing you know absolutely without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop hospitals factories schools and power plants they all depend on you no matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So at this point, I hope you don't mind. I'd like to turn the conversation from Tupac a little bit more to yourself, and I'll explain why. Consequence is doing a month-long celebration of the history of hip-hop, because it is, of course, the 50th anniversary. And I'd love to get your perspective on the interplay between film and hip-hop. And I want to start off that topic by asking, when did you first know you wanted to be a filmmaker? Uh, I think me and my brother were 10. I think we went to go see our babysitter took us to see this movie, this period piece with her boyfriend. And we were went kicking and screaming like we don't want to fuck period piece. And when that boulder rolled down and chased after Harrison Ford and Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981, we were like, holy fuck, what is in the whole movie? Just that was the moment we wanted to become filmmakers. Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981, we were 
nine or ten years old. I can't do my math right here. <laughs> and we were we 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 would take Polaroid cameras and act like we were making movies. And then when my mother started making some money, she bought us a camera when we were twelve, and that was all she wrote. That's all we did was learn how to edit, learn how to make movies. And hip hop in 1984 was happening. You know, you're talking about Run DMC and LL Cool J. It was starting to really break through and was out there at the same time. And some of my earliest movies, even in high school, it was, we would take like something like Miami Vice and do a, because it was video. We didn't do serious stuff back then. We would do a send up on it and call it Compton Vice and like completely make it hip hop. We won some awards for that one. That was a short film. So hip hop was always there and film was there from the beginning. Was it the logic just, we love hip hop, we love film. If we're going to do film, it's going to have hip hop in it. No, there was never a thought. I think it just, because that's what it is, that's what who you are. It just naturally happened. And when I look back and I, because I was the music one of the, of the two, I would put the soundtracks together and pick the music. Albert had musical ideas, but I was the music guy, you know, and, and we had several uh, multi-platinum soundtracks in our films. And you, and you look back and it, even even when we did American Pimp, it was chock full of like all those classic R&B hits that hip hop sampled. It just was what you it's just who you are. You can't you can't be something you're not. It's just who you are. It was never a conscious thought. Sure. Of course. You're talking about the soundtracks. You know, I, I feel like we're, we're, we're the era of the soundtrack may or may not be gone, but we're definitely at a point now that it's really great to have those those original soundtracks, you know, just as a time capsule of what what people were listening to at that time. One hundred percent. And they're still powerful. Of course. I mean, we, we, I imagine that wasn't something you were necessarily thinking about when you were assembling them at the time. No, no, no. But when you look at the 90s in particular, but this goes back to Superfly. This goes back to Shaft. This goes back to Trouble Man by Marvin Gaye. Oh, yeah. You know, one of my favorites. You know, like this started in the early 70s with like black, edgy, because like, you can call it R&B music. But when you listen to certain Curtis Mayfield records or when you listen to the actual Trouble Man song, Marvin Gaye is literally rapping on that song. I think some places, I think some places, I can't do the lyrics, but like that's hip hop. He's rapping. <laughs> that's 1972. And then Tracy directed it a New Jack City soundtrack, the Boys in the Hood soundtrack, the Jew soundtrack, the Menace Society soundtrack. It's just 20 years later. Absolutely. I mean, do you feel like there's a way in which movies, movies centered around black culture could exist without hip hop? Or is that are they just that intertwined? I think it's that intertwined, except there's a time in the 90s and you could see the films like Waiting to Exhale. And I'm forgetting a few other ones that were R&B centric. Right. Because the 90s was the last time that R&B, they weren't talking about bitches and hoes and fucking and sucking in R&B songs. It was mm -hmm. actually real R&B music without the curse words. So there was that there was that genre of black film. Let's just call it sexy R&B black film. And then hip hop did something that no other medium in our form in the history of mankind and womankind did, which is completely consumed everything in its path. And you saw how in the last five years it was happening for 30, 40 years. It became the number one selling genre of music because it literally envelops everything in its path. And nothing can survive hip hop's path <laughs> because it, it just adopts in. So R&B became hip hop. Rock became hip hop. Country became hip hop. You know, like, so you, you can't compete with that. Yeah. And film became hip hop. 
and film became hip hop. Television I, became hip hop. Everything. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like part of it too, like, you know, you, you made your shorts first and then you did some music videos. And then from the music videos, you moved into directing features. What about moving between music videos and film, you know, contributed to that from your perspective? I think, thank God, at the time, my brother and I only did it for less than a year, the music videos, mm-hmm. and they were all hip-hop music videos. Because I see, if you stay in music videos, you develop a, bad, a tremendous amount of bad habits that won't help you in long-form narrative. It's like taking a sprinter who's been running and making them a marathon runner. It's two different things. So we were blessed enough to be given an opportunity in hip-hop music videos and the urgency that came with that back in 91 where there were still stories in the music. There was still storytelling in the music and we were fortunate enough to get out after only a year of doing it because we never saw music videos as the destination that was like a means to an end we always wanted to do feature films and once you get to the side once you land on menace society and you see what we have a lot of problems with it we never liked the film but you could see what worked about the film was it literally again has hip-hop energy that's hip-hop energy and it's probably the first time in the history of motion pictures, major motion pictures, where the lunatics were running the asylum as well, because we're 1920 directing a film about 1920 year olds, and there is no filter. It's hectic. It actually had been a long time since I'd seen it. So I was rewatching it last night, and it really is fascinating just as a, just as even just thinking about it from the perspective of this is the first a lot of white people were seeing of what things were, what was going on. And that's who it was made for. Yeah. You, you, for the white audience. Yeah, we said that back then because I, I remember Cisco Ebert gave a Spike Lee a funny review and Spike's response was appropriate. He goes, I don't make my films for you guys. Mm. And I thought that was incredible. But by the time we got the menace, the whole reason why we made it was we knew that other people outside of the black community didn't understand why these kids got like this. They just saw them as animals in the, in the news from the helicopter. That's the way the media treated black people, cops every week, right? So we were like, wow, we can get if we can get white people to understand that this is actually a child. This is actually a human being that because of a set of circumstances has done these things, then that's a win for us. And I can't tell you, Liz, how many people when that movie came out, so many white people would grab me and go, I just didn't, you know, or my brother like, oh, my God, they that film. I just didn't understand. I was like, we may not me and my brother may not be happy with technically or we have problems with menace, whatever. But the result was exactly what we wanted. You know, people really did feel it. They really did understand things they didn't understand before. So that was really re- rewarding in that regard, you know. Do you feel like there are, there are multiple films that, multiple films we would define as hip-hop films that are made for white audiences versus black audiences? Probably not. <laughs> I don't think anyone, I've never heard, at best, I think people go, I want everyone to watch the film. You know, it's just for everyone, right? So I don't remember a time where black filmmakers are like, no, we made this for white people. <laughs> that was yeah, I, would, I wouldn't imagine that'd be part of the press tour necessarily. No. But we said it back then, like the nuts we were, because it was the truth. And not that we didn't want black people or other people to enjoy the film, because obviously we did, and obviously they, they did. But the statement we were making was aimed at a target. And I think in art, I always tell people, when you're making something artistic or you want to do something great, who are you talking to? And sometimes it's that person that broke your heart in high school. Sometimes it's your parents. But you got to be talking to someone. Or sometimes it's a teacher that underestimated you. So you have to have a target. And I don't think it's meaningful, period. I would love your perspective on what could be... If you were going to make an argument that hip-hop and film 
hit a hit a level of prestige and a level of acceptance, you would probably point to Eminem winning an Oscar and then followed by Three Six Mafia winning an Oscar in the 2000s. But that's just something I'm throwing out there. I'd love to get your perspective on that. It's hard out here for a pimp. I had mixed feelings, but I love that track. A great song. The question was like when we knew hip hop. I mean, there's there's different levels of acceptance, of course. Yeah. There's the yeah. movie makes a lot of money at the box office, even from including white audiences. There's and but there's then there's getting an Oscar acceptance. And I'm wondering, yeah. do you feel like that was a turning point or do you feel like that was kind of a, a moment that we may not get back to? Both of those examples? Not not both necessarily. I'm just looking uh, at that. I'm just looking at that period in time. I, I gotta be real. I don't think hip hop no matter what award it wins, which it hasn't won many, but there is a Grammy category now and all that bullshit, right? Unfortunately, I think in this country as a whole, and I love this country, I have a massive problem with our culture. There's a big difference, right? On a whole, I think people look at jazz and let's just say white people and go, oh my God, that's like the medium where they go, oh, what an artist, oh, we can we can only hope that we can play with them someday or whatever. I think hip-hop will always be the redheaded stepchild. Always. I don't care. It, it never, even though it's the number one selling art form in, in the world right now, there is never a moment, just like our, our our voting rights and the right to choose and affirmative action, there's never a moment where you've actually arrived. It's always going to be undermined some, somehow. I hate to sound pessimistic. I think the exciting thing is there's never been more like opportunity for people of color in film and television, and there's never been so many shows and films out there. And I don't think that's going to go away like it did in the 90s. That's the great. The the other piece of great news is all these years in film entertainment where they say black doesn't travel, and you see literally in the case where you sit the black character at the Marvel franchise table that it does a billion dollars when you give it the same resources. So I think you can't, you can't say that anymore, right? So those are the positives. I don't care how what happens. There's this thing in our country, and it's it just is what it is. It's why I made dear mama that it's just good old fashioned racism. It, it, it's always going to be here in some form. And now you see, unfortunately for us all, there's a large group of people trying to erase the fact that slavery even happened. So you're like, wow, we never, we barely were getting to the point just having a conversation and the come to Jesus moment, which is 400 plus years in the making. We can't have that conversation. So do I think a uniquely black art form that some consider the last great art form of the 20th century is ever going to get its just due? Fuck no. And by the way, that's what makes it punk rock. No matter how pop it is or someone does this. And I love when white kids and Asian kids and Indian kids, anyone that takes hip hop on because it's meant for everyone. That's wonderful. But the thing that's going to keep it and make it always be true to what it is, which is what put punk rock out of business is the embodiment of punk rock is that it'll always be treated like the stepchild and the stepchild will always be trying to overachieve and will overachieve. Yeah. And how do you feel like, you know, looking at films today, like, do you feel like that that same energy is still present in 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 the in the in the hip hop films that come out these days. I think I think now that the energy in these these hip hop films is more eclectic, like hip hop is. Like you'll see like the backpacks film, the weird weirdo film. You'll see the I don't know, like there's some I'm not even there's some strange shit out here that works, and there's some strange shit out here that doesn't work. But thank God they tried, and it's really emblematic of uh, how diverse hip hop is now. It's not just gangster shit or um whatever we may think of hip-hop. They got a lot of weird old films out here right now, very artistic, sometimes so artistic the narrative doesn't make any sense, but cool, you know? Yeah. And meanwhile, on the other hand, we have uh, Black Panther. Straight up. 
I mean, without hip hop, what what's the date in August? Do you know the date that the official? I don't know. Actually, I think like I think we're kind of just going with a general August <laughs> right. hip hop month. I think it might be the twenty third. I'm not sure, but I'll say one thing, Liz. I remember going to, and I'm not much of a club goer, but I remember in the late '90s, 2000, I was in the club in Hollywood, and I saw a bunch of very attractive white girls on the dance floor, and they knew every lyric to the nastiest two short song that I ever. They knew, and they're just rocking to it, rocking to it, rocking. This must have been '98, '99, 2000. A bunch of white girls. I said, "This is rap. Like this is." This is in them now. There's racism can't defeat this, but racism has a way of like from my cold dead arms. You know, it comes right back. <laughs> and I think without hip hop, we don't clearly get Barack Obama. You know, we clearly don't get Black Panther because John Singleton was trying to make Black Panther 30 years ago, couldn't get it off the ground. So without hip hop, there's a lot that doesn't happen, but it's got to take hip hop to save us from these degenerate pieces of shit that are trying to push racism, make racism pop again. It's got to take hip-hop to save us from that. And it's got to take artists in the hip-hop space to wake up and say something because we've gotten away from that. You can say what you will about Tupac's last 11 months with Death Row, but at least his first 24 years, he was saying something and he stood for something. And right now, outside of Kendrick Lamar and a handful of others, there's no one's really saying anything or standing for anything. And by the way, I mean that of our celebrities in general. You see what's going on again with the Roe versus Wade. You see what's going on with voting rights. You're like, where are the leaders in the celebrity space? Strangely disappeared. No one stands for anything anymore. And everyone's scared. You do not appear to be, which is a very good thing. I hope not. I hope not. I I, I feel like I just want to ask, looking forward. By the way, congratulations on the Emmy nominations. I should mention that before. Mm -hmm. Beyond whenever the Emmys might happen, what are you looking forward to? Like, what what are you or is there anything you're excited to see coming down the pipeline? As far as like in the culture? Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to someone surprising the shit out of me and what we just talked about. I'm looking forward to like a, a bunch of artists and writers and um, so-called community leaders stepping up and surprising the shit out of all of us. I'm looking forward to women, young women and men, instead of the morning, check out this day. The day that we found out that they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade, that afternoon that leaked out. You know what was happening that morning? All these young people, women and men, talking about Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian's dress at the Met Gala, the Marilyn Monroe thing. That's all they were talking about. I'm looking forward to seeing when the youth stops talking about this bullshit and starts focusing on their rights and preserving their rights and not just getting out here and doing little social media hip things when it comes to like civil rights and human rights and women's rights, but actually getting active and doing the granular work, the unsexy part of it. I'm looking forward to that. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, 
so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.